Part two of chapter ten of book one of the wealth of nations. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Escalera. The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. Part two of chapter ten of book one of wages and profit in the different employments of labor and stock. The lottery of the sea is not altogether so disadvantageous as that of the army. The son of a creditable laborer or artificer may frequently go to sea with his father's consent. But if he enlists as a soldier, it is always without it. Other people see some chance of his making something by the one trade. Nobody but himself sees any of his making anything by the other. The great admiral is less the object of public admiration than the great general, and the highest success in the sea service promises a less brilliant fortune and reputation than equal success in the land. The same difference runs through all the inferior ranks of preferment in both. By the rules of precedency, a captain in the navy ranks with a colonel in the army, but he does not rank with him in the common estimation. As the great prizes in the lottery are less, the smaller ones must be more numerous. Common sailors, therefore, more frequently get some fortune and preferment than common soldiers, and the hope of those prizes is what principally recommends the trade. Though their skill and dexterity are much superior to that of almost any artificer, and though their whole life is one continual scene of hardship and danger, yet for all this dexterity and skill, for all those hardships and dangers, while they remain in the condition of common sailors, they receive scarce any other recompense but the pleasure of exercising the one and of surmounting the other. Their wages are not greater than those of common laborers at the port which regulates the rate of seamen's wages. As they are continually going from port to port, the monthly pay of those who sail from all the different ports of Great Britain is more nearly upon a level than that of any other workman in those different places, and the rate of the port to and from which the greatest number sail, that is, the port of London, regulates that of all the rest. At London, the wages of the greater part of the different classes of workmen are about double those of the same classes in Edinburgh. But the sailors who sail from the port of London seldom earn above three or four shillings a month more than those who sail from the port of Leith, and the difference is frequently not so great. In time of peace and in the merchant service, the London price is from a guinea to about seven and twenty shillings the calendar month. A common laborer in London, at the rate of nine or ten shillings a week, may earn in the calendar month from forty to five and forty shillings. The sailor, indeed, over and above his pay, is supplied with provisions. Their value, however, may not perhaps always exceed the difference between his pay and that of the common laborer, and though it sometimes should, the excess will not be clear gain to the sailor, because he cannot share it with his wife and family, whom he must maintain out of his wages at home. The dangers and hairbreadth escapes of a life of adventures, instead of disheartening young people, seem frequently to recommend a trade to them. A tender mother, among the inferior ranks of people, is often afraid to send her son to school at a seaport town, lest the sight of ships and the conversation and adventures of the sailors should entice him to go to sea. The distant prospect of hazards, from which we can hope to extricate ourselves by courage and address, is not disagreeable to us, and does not raise the wages of labor in any employment. It is otherwise with those in which courage and address can be of no avail. In trades which are known to be very unwholesome, the wages of labor are always remarkably high. Unwholesomeness is a species of disagreeableness, and its effects upon the wages of labor are to be ranked under that general head. In all the different employments of stock, the ordinary rate of profit varies more or less with the certainty or uncertainty of the returns. These are, in general, less uncertain in the inland than in the foreign trade, and in some branches of foreign trade than in others in the trade to North America, for example, than in that to Jamaica. 
the ordinary rate of profit always rises more or less with the risk it does not however seem to rise in proportion to it or so as to compensate it quickly bankruptcies are most frequent in the most hazardous trades the most hazardous of all trades that of a smuggler though when the adventure succeeds it is likewise the most profitable is the infallible road to bankruptcy the presumptuous hope of success seems to act here as upon all other occasions and to entice so many adventurers into those hazardous trades that their competition reduces the profit below what is sufficient to compensate the risk to compensate it completely the common returns ought over and above the ordinary profits of stock not only to make up for all occasional losses but to afford a surplus profit to the adventurers of the same nature with the profit of insurers but if the common returns were sufficient for all this, bankruptcies would not be more frequent in these than in other trades. Of the five circumstances, therefore, which vary the wages of labor, two only affect the profits of stock, the agreeableness or disagreeableness of the business, and the risk or security with which it is attended. In point of agreeableness or disagreeableness, there is little or no difference in the far greater part of the different employments of stock, but a great deal in those of labor and in the ordinary profit of stock though it rises with the risk does not always seem to rise in proportion to it it should follow from all this that in the same society or neighborhood the average and ordinary rates of profit in the different employments of stock should be more nearly upon a level than the pecuniary wages of the different sorts of labor they are so accordingly the difference between the earnings of a common laborer and those of a well-employed lawyer or physician is evidently much greater than that between the ordinary profits in any two different branches of trade the apparent difference besides in the profits of different trades is generally a deception arising from our not always distinguishing what ought to be considered as wages from what ought to be considered as profit apothecary's profit is become a byword denoting something uncommonly extravagant this great apparent profit however is frequently no more than the reasonable wages of labor the skill of an apothecary is a much nicer and more delicate matter than that of any artificer whatever and the trust which is reposed in him is of much greater importance he is the physician of the poor in all cases and of the rich when the distress or danger is not very great his reward therefore ought to be suitable to his skill and his trust and it arises generally from the price at which he sells his drugs but the whole drugs which the best employed apothecary in a large market town will sell in a year may not perhaps cost him above thirty or forty pounds though he should sell them therefore for three or four hundred or at a thousand per cent profit this may frequently be no more than the reasonable wages of his labor charged in the only way in which he can charge them upon the price of his drugs the greater part of the apparent profit is real wages disguised in the garb of profit in a small seaport town a little grocer will make forty or fifty per cent upon a stock of a single hundred pounds while a considerable wholesale merchant in the same place will scarce make eight or ten per cent upon a stock of ten thousand the trade of the grocer may be necessary for the conveniency of the inhabitants and the narrowness of the market may not admit the employment of a larger capital in the business the man however must not only live by his trade but live by it suitably to the qualifications which it requires Besides possessing a little capital, he must be able to read, write, and account, and must be a tolerable judge, too, of perhaps fifty or sixty different sorts of goods, their prices, qualities, and the markets where they are to be had cheapest. He must have all the knowledge, in short, that is necessary for a great merchant, which nothing hinders him from becoming but the want of a sufficient capital. Thirty or forty pounds a year cannot be considered as too great a recompense for the labor of a person so accomplished deduct this from the seemingly great profits of his capital and little more will remain perhaps than the ordinary profits of stock 
the greater part of the apparent profit is, in this case, too, real wages. The difference between the apparent profit of the retail and that of the wholesale trade is much less in the capital than in small towns and country villages. Where £10,000 can be employed in the grocery trade, the wages of the grocer's labour must be a very trifling addition to the real profits of so great a stock. The apparent profits of the wealthy retailer, therefore, are there more nearly upon a level with those of the wholesale merchant. It is upon this account that goods sold by retail are generally as cheap, and frequently much cheaper, in the capital than in small towns and country villages. Grocery goods, for example, are generally much cheaper. Bread and butcher's meat frequently as cheap. It costs no more to bring grocery goods to the great town than to the country village, but it costs a great deal more to bring corn and cattle, as the greater part of them must be brought from a much greater distance. The prime cost of grocery goods, therefore, being the same in both places, they are cheapest where the least profit is charged upon them. The prime cost of bread and butcher's meat is greater in the great town than in the country village, and though the profit is less, therefore they are not always cheaper there, but often equally cheap. In such articles as bread and butcher's meat, the same cause which diminishes apparent profit increases prime cost. The extent of the market by giving employment to greater stocks diminishes apparent profit, but by requiring supplies from a greater distance it increases prime cost. This diminution of the one and increase of the other seem in most cases nearly to counterbalance one another, which is probably the reason that, though the prices of corn and capital are commonly very different in different parts of the kingdom, those of bread and butcher's meat are generally very nearly the same through the greater part of it. Though the profits of stock, both in the wholesale and retail trade, are generally less in the capital than in small towns and country villages, yet great fortunes are frequently acquired from small beginnings in the former, and scarce ever in the latter. In small towns and country villages, on account of the narrowness of the market, trade cannot always be extended as stock extends. In such places, therefore, though the rate of a particular person's profits may be very high, the sum or amount of them can never be very great, nor consequently that of his annual accumulation. In great towns, on the contrary, trade can be extended as stock increases, and the credit of a frugal and thriving man increases much faster than his stock. His trade is extended in proportion to the amount of both, and the sum or amount of his profits is in proportion to the extent of his trade, and his annual accumulation in proportion to the amount of his profits. It seldom happens, however, that great fortunes are made, even in great towns, by any one regular, established, and well-known branch of business, but in consequence of a long life of industry, frugality, and attention. Sudden fortunes, indeed, are sometimes made in such places by what is called the trade of speculation, the speculative merchant exercises no one regular, established, or well-known branch of business. He is a corn merchant this year, and a wine merchant the next, and a sugar, tobacco, or tea merchant the year after. He enters into every trade when he foresees that it is likely to lie more than commonly profitable, and he quits it when he foresees that its profits are likely to return to the level of other trades. His profits and losses, therefore, can bear no regular proportion to those of any one established and well-known branch of business. A bold adventurer may sometimes acquire a considerable fortune by two or three successful speculations, but is just as likely to lose one by two or three unsuccessful ones. This trade can be carried on nowhere but in great towns. It is only in places of the most extensive commerce and correspondence that the intelligence requisite for it can be had. The five circumstances above mentioned, though they occasion considerable inequalities in the wages of labor and profits of stock, occasion none in the whole of the advantages and disadvantages, real or imaginary, of the different employments of either. 
the nature of those circumstances is such that they make up for a small pecuniary gain in some and counterbalance a great one in others in order however that this equality may take place in the whole of their advantages or disadvantages three things are requisite even where there is the most perfect freedom first the employments must be well known and long established in the neighborhood secondly they must be in their ordinary or what may be called their natural state and thirdly they must be the sole or principal employments of those who occupy them first this equality can take place only in those employments which are well known and have been long established in the neighborhood where all other circumstances are equal wages are generally higher in new than in old trades when a projector attempts to establish a new manufacture he must at first entice his workmen from other employments by higher wages than they can either earn in their own trades or than the nature of his work would otherwise require and a considerable time must pass away before he can venture to reduce them to the common level manufactures for which the demand arises altogether from fashion and fancy are continually changing and seldom last long enough to be considered as old established manufactures those on the contrary for which the demand arises chiefly from use or necessity are less liable to change and the same form or fabric may continue in demand for whole centuries together the wages of labor therefore are likely to be higher in manufactures of the form than in those of the latter kind birmingham deals chiefly in manufactures of the former kind sheffield in those of the latter and the wages of labor in those two different places are said to be suitable to this difference in the nature of their manufactures the establishment of any new manufacture of any new branch of commerce or of any new practice in agriculture is always a speculation from which the projector promises himself extraordinary profits these profits sometimes are very great and sometimes more frequently perhaps they are quite otherwise but in general they bear no regular proportion to those of other old trades in the neighborhood if the project succeeds they are commonly at first very high when the trade or practice becomes thoroughly established and well known the competition reduces them to the level of other trades secondly this equality in the whole of the advantages and disadvantages of the different employments of labor and stock can take place only in the ordinary or what may be called the natural state of those employments the demand for almost every different species of labor is sometimes greater and sometimes less than usual in the one case the advantages of the employment rise above in the other they fall below the common level the demand for country labor is greater at hay time and harvest than during the greater part of the year and wages rise with the demand in time of war when forty or fifty thousand sailors are forced from the merchant service into that of the king the demand for sailors to merchant ships necessarily rises with their scarcity and their wages upon such occasions commonly rise from a guinea and seven and twenty shillings to forty shillings and three pounds a month in a decaying manufacture on the contrary many workmen rather than quit their own trade are contented with smaller wages than would otherwise be suitable to the nature of their employment the profits of stock vary with the price of the commodities in which it is employed as the price of any commodity rises above the ordinary or average rate the profits of at least some part of the stock that is employed in bringing it to market rise above their proper level and as it falls they sink below it all commodities are more or less liable to variations of price but some are much more so than others in all commodities which are produced by human industry the quantity of industry annually employed is necessarily regulated by the annual demand in such a manner that the average annual produce may as nearly as possible be equal to the average annual consumption in some employments it has already been observed the same quantity of industry will always produce the same or very nearly the same quantity of commodities 
In the linen or woollen manufactures, for example, the same number of hands will annually work up very nearly the same quantity of linen and woollen cloth. The variations in the market price of such commodities, therefore, can arise only from some accidental variation in the demand. A public mourning raises the price of black cloth, but as the demand for most sorts of plain linen and woollen cloth is pretty uniform, so is likewise the price. But there are other employments in which the same quantity of industry will not always produce the same quantity of commodities. The same quantity of industry, for example, will, in different years, produce very different quantities of corn, wine, hops, sugar, tobacco, etc. The price of such commodities, therefore, varies not only with the variations of demand, but with the much greater and more frequent variations of quantity, and is consequently extremely fluctuating. But the profit of some of the dealers must necessarily fluctuate with the price of the commodities. The operations of the speculative merchant are principally employed about such commodities. He endeavors to buy them up when he foresees that their price is likely to rise, and to sell them when it is likely to fall. Thirdly, this equality in the whole of the advantages and disadvantages of the different employments of labor and stock can take place only in such as are the sole or principal employments of those who occupy them. When a person derives his subsistence from one employment which does not occupy the greater part of his time, in the intervals of his leisure he is often willing to work at another for less wages than would otherwise suit the nature of the employment. There still subsists, in many parts of Scotland, a set of people called cotters, or cottagers, though they were more frequent some years ago than they are now. They are a sort of out-servants of the landlords and farmers. The usual reward which they receive from their master is a house, a small garden for pot-herbs, as much grass as will feed a cow, and perhaps an acre or two of bad arable land. When their master has occasion for their labor, he gives them, besides, two pecks of oatmeal a week, worth about sixteen pence sterling. During a great part of the year he has little or no occasion for their labor, and the cultivation of their own little possession is not sufficient to occupy the time which is left at their own disposal. When such occupiers were more numerous than they are at present, they are said to have been willing to give their spare time for a very small recompense to anybody, and to have wrought for less wages than other laborers. In ancient times they seem to have been common all over Europe. In countries ill-cultivated and worse inhabited, the greater part of landlords and farmers could not otherwise provide themselves with the extraordinary number of hands which country labor requires at certain seasons. The daily or weekly recompense which such laborers occasionally received from their masters was evidently not the whole price of their labor. Their small tenement made a considerable part of it. This daily or weekly recompense, however, seems to have been considered as the whole of it by many writers who have collected the prices of labor and provisions in ancient times, and who have taken pleasure in representing both as wonderfully low. The produce of such labor comes frequently cheaper to market than would otherwise be suitable to its nature. Stockings in many parts of Scotland are knit much cheaper than they can anywhere be wrought upon the loom. They are the work of servants and laborers who derive the principal part of their subsistence from other employment. More than a thousand pair of Shetland stockings are annually imported into Leith, of which the price is from five pence to seven pence a pair. At Lerwick, the small capital of the Shetland Islands, ten pence a day, I have been assured, is a common price of common labor. In the same islands they knit worsted stockings to the value of a guinea a pair and upwards. The spinning of linen yarn is carried on in Scotland nearly in the same way as the knitting of stockings by servants who are chiefly hired for other purposes. They earn but a very scanty subsistence, who endeavor to get their livelihood by either of those trades. In most parts of Scotland, she is a good spinner who can earn twenty pence a week. In opulent countries, the market is generally so extensive that any one trade is sufficient to employ the whole labor and stock of those who occupy it. 
instances of people living by one employment and at the same time deriving some little advantage from another occur chiefly in poor countries the following instance however of something of the same kind is to be found in the capital of a very rich one there is no city in europe i believe in which house rent is dearer than in london and yet i know no capital in which a furnished apartment can be hired so cheap lodging is not only much cheaper in london than in paris it is much cheaper than in edinburgh of the same degree of goodness and what may seem extraordinary the dearness of house rent is the cause of the cheapness of lodging the dearness of house rent in london arises not only from those causes which render it dear in all great capitals the dearness of labour the dearness of all the materials of building which must be generally brought from a great distance and above all the dearness of ground rent every landlord acting the part of a monopolist and frequently exacting a higher rent for a single acre of bad land in a town than can be had for a hundred of the best in the country but it arises in part from the peculiar manners and customs of the people which oblige every master of a family to hire a whole house from top to bottom a dwelling-house in england means everything that is contained under the same roof in france scotland and many other parts of europe it frequently means no more than a single story a tradesman in london is obliged to hire a whole house in that part of the town where his customers live his shop is upon the ground floor and he and his family sleep in the garret and he endeavours to pay a part of his house-rent by letting the two middle stories to lodgers he expects to maintain his family by his trade and not by his lodgers whereas at paris and edinburgh people who let lodgings have commonly no other means of subsistence and the price of the lodging must pay not only the rent of the house but the whole expense of the family end of book one chapter ten part two